which has kind of been a little campaign of mine for a long time about representation in the industry. Um, and we put together a really, really nice package. Diana had written the original books called Candide, and um, we got together and started working on this. And we have a pretty solid package, which has gotten uh, some pretty good interest. We don't have a deal signed anywhere just yet, but uh, I'm very excited about that. Um, and Diana's Zimmerman, look her up. She's an incredible fireball of a person. Um, those of you who are uh, my age have probably seen her because she used to appear on all the talk shows and Carson shows. She was a magician and one of the top female magicians. Um, and then when she stopped doing that, she decided to start some corporations and become an author, and she's just incredibly dynamic. That's cool. So, so is the yeah, so it, that one, you know, we'll see what that goes. If it goes mm -hmm. through, will it be called Candide, or is it going to have a different name? Well, it, you know, we were originally calling it Candide because that's, that's one of the main characters, and then we realized that we were creating this world where other stories could be told within it, kind of like the Star Trek universe. You can tell stories that have absolutely nothing to do with the original Star Trek or the original characters. They're just in that world that was created. So the world itself is called Eventide. So we've changed it to Eventide. Okay. Yeah. I think I think that I I haven't read the book, but I think I, I was going to pick it up, but I haven't gotten it yet. Um. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Um, it, it's, it, it's an interesting thing with me when I adapt novels or other previous works, I tend to, if and I, and I rarely do that in the first place, this one just kind of really struck me, um, I, like I told Diana, I said, I don't want to read your book. I don't, because what I want to do is hear you pitch it to me and give me the stuff that means something to you so I'm not biased by your books. We can always use them as reference material and go back to them if we need to. So we kind of started off with that, and like I said, it's it turned out to be pretty good. Uh, so I've got that going on. Um, the graphic novel that I wrote with Kevin J. Anderson, mm -hmm. we did sign a production, or we did sign a development deal, I should say, with New Republic Entertainment. Um, they did Rocket Man and uh, 1917, and it is New Republic Entertainment. I always get mixed up between them and Republic Pictures. Uh, but uh, that one is still under the um, guidance of Francis Lawrence, the director who directed um, Constantine, Three of the Hunger Games, Red Sparrow, I Am Legend, uh, one of my favorite directors, and a really, really genuinely good person, <laughs> a nice person. I enjoy talking to him. So that's still in development, um, still going forward. And we'll hopefully see something with that very soon. Uh, I'm working on three novels. But again, I preface that by saying I'm working on them. I haven't finished them. <laughs> um, uh, novels by myself, uh, not with Jessica. I did uh, have a short story published in the first Alien vs. Predator anthology. Oh, that's cool. What's the name of uh, it? Yeah. Hmm? What is the name of it? Uh, well, the name of the anthology is um, Alien vs. Predator's Ultimate Prey. No, I meant your story, Steve. <laughs> and my story, I'm actually pausing long enough to try to remember oh, okay. what the name of my story is. Um, oh, I, I see. Think it's, I, oh, I believe it's Isla Mantanza. Okay. And um, it's, it was an interesting experience doing this. I, I, you know, I've started writing short stories for anthologies. I have like two and a half stories in uh, Jeff Sturgeon's uh, book. And you, you actually have interviewed both myself and Jeff, yep. uh, The Last Cities of Earth. Um, I may actually release a collection of short stories just for the fun of it. That's uh, cool. Original stories by me, yeah, in my bizarre mind. Uh, but I was approached to submit a story for the Alien vs. Predators anthology. It's the first one that, that's actually been done. The movie franchises, of course, are out there, but it's the first time they did an anthology book of this clash of the two franchises. And it was an interesting experience because... This book, they wanted to focus on diversity. They wanted the stories to reflect that and, and the authors to reflect that. Now, even though my work, I'm proud to say, reflects diversity, you would not think that by looking at me. Not at all. So, I, and, I, and by the way, I, I actually like the fact that this happened. So they agreed to let me submit a story, which doesn't mean I'm that's contractually obligated to put that story in. I can submit a story. And so I wrote a story 
<clears throat> that was set in the 1700s, and it dealt with um, colonialism, slavery, Spanish expansion, religious differences, um, and it was subject to a lot of critique and review between the studios, sensitivity readers, because honestly, they should have been doing this a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So they picked through it, and I mean, this this lasted for a while, and I was, it's, yes, it is something that is a task, but it, I welcomed it, I thought it was great, and everything they asked me about it, I was able to actually link to actual histories, because I love to use actual history in my stories, and it finally got approved, I think it's the second the second story in the book uh, and it finally got approved and um, I'm very very proud of it and and, it's, and almost everything in there every reference in there is actually historically true except for the aliens and the predators I had to add them in yeah. <laughs> but the story's all about that <laughs> so I'm rather proud of that one that was a lot of fun um, so yeah so that's some of the things that I'm working on but you've always used history I mean when you were doing Xena your stories had a lot of history in it well, yes, in an alternate timeline. Let's let's. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, of course. Yeah, you know, we do an analogy to the story of Abraham. Then next week she's in Troy. Yeah, okay. yeah, a little bit of a time little bit of a there. time jump there. <laughs> well, it's how I always you know looked at Zena um, myself, and also R.J. Stewart who was one of the exact producers on the show. R.J. was a bit of a historian himself, and Rob um, Tappert was as well. So we love to borrow elements from the stories. But rarely do they actually comport directly. There was one episode I wrote of Xena, which, if you take out five years from the actual history, is totally 100% believable if you assume there was a warrior princess and her companion, Gabrielle, there at the same time. And um, again, titles for these things are always confusing because we use multiple titles when we're actually creating it. Um, but I think it was, I think it was uh, Win in Rome. Well, that's a great um, story. That particular story, that was which deals, one. I believe, with uh, the death of Pompeii and so on and so on. Um, but all of that actually was drawn directly from history, kind of like, oh, well, here's a history you didn't know. But there was a five years where the character Verkinix, which was a shortened version of his actual name, was kept in captivity by Caesar before he was executed. So if you just take out those five years, it all works. It all <laughs> it works. works. It all works. Yeah. No, it's a really but good I, episode. Yeah, I, I like that one. Thank you. But it's funny, I yeah. always told, uh, why do you like Xena? I go, well, there's several reasons. One, I love the stories. Two, I love the actors. Three, it's sort of like a time travel story. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they pop all over the place. So to me, it's sort of, and I love time travel, so it's sort of like a time travel yeah. thing. <laughs> and I always looked at it, I always said it's an alternate universe that has similar lines. Um, one of the best compliments I got, maybe actually thrilled me, was an email I got from a parent who told me that his child, would they would watch Zena together, and his child would criticize the show. That couldn't be real. That couldn't be real. And then the child would go off and grab an encyclopedia and start reading up on the history. And he suddenly realized his child was reading. Even though it was critical of the show, the child was actually going and reading the encyclopedia now wanting to learn more about actual history. I I, I, like, okay. I used to do that. <laughs> oh, I I'm I am so known for being into the details and questioning. I read the entire World Book Encyclopedia 1964 edition, not in 1964, much later. Um when I was a child, mm -hmm. I read through the entire thing. Now I can't remember it all, but I just thought it was fascinating. And it, and it all started, it all started with a bathroom. <laughs> and that's the truth. That is the truth. I remember I was going to go into the bathroom, and I just wanted to grab something to occupy my time, as guys do. And I grabbed the first volume of the encyclopedia, and it became kind of a tradition. But I, I ended up with a, um, um, an incredible knowledge of world history and a severely damaged digestive system. <laughs> Did it, was it one of those... Um, encyclopedias, because my my family had it was like you you get the first two or three, and then you go to the store to pick up each new volume, the grocery store, to pick each up new volume of the encyclopedia until you had the entire thing. 
I don't actually know where ours came from. I mean, it was it was the white cover edition. That was a 1964 edition of the uh, the World Book Encyclopedia. I just remember it being completely there extant. And then, of course, you get the yearly supplement, um, which I still get from Britannica, even though I bought my Britannica set back in 1985, and it's out in the garage now, but I still get the yearly um, supplement. Um, and somewhere in, in Jessica's office, I actually have the blue edition of the World Book Encyclopedia, which is even older. That's, I find that real interesting when you read their projections of technology and what we actually did. I find that yeah. interesting. I think it's really interesting when you look at, like, I still have some of my old textbooks, just because I love them. Uh -huh. I have my archaeology textbooks, I have my astronomy textbooks, and stuff like that. And what I like to do is, like, right now, especially with astronomy, we're getting so much amazing pictures because of the new um, telescope up there, the web. The web. Um, I like to open up my old astronomy book and compare the nebula with the pictures that the new web pictures are taking because it's just really right. interesting to me. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, as we move on and we gain more knowledge, uh, I mean, right now on my shelf I have an autographed textbook, autographed by the author, a 1932 chemistry book. And reading that, especially the part that deals with nuclear fission, is pretty interesting from that particular time. And it's it's I, you know as a futurist I find things that things that are fascinating to me are the things that even if people expected the technology to get there, they never understood the impact. That's what a futurist is. A futurist doesn't just look at technologies mm -hmm. as they evolve, but the impact that they have. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest one in our lifetime. Um, it used to be the transistor that was back then. People were like, oh my gosh, the transistor. Now everything was miniaturized. The Internet has had the most incredible sociological impact of almost anything, certainly in my lifetime. Um, the fact that the Internet was going to happen had been predicted. The impact that it had, nobody could foresee it. So I, I was amused recently about an um, a advertisement I found <clears throat> It was for a magazine back probably in the 50s or 60s. And it showed somebody talking on a video screen with somebody else. Now, keep in mind, back then, just like telephones, you know, pick it up, it's attached to the wall, and you talk to somebody. Well, this was a person, and they had the telephone handset in their hand, and they had dialed up somebody, and that person's face was on the screen as they were talking to them. And for them, that was, it was I think it was for Hughes or Hewlett Packard, I think it was for Hughes, actually. And that was an advertisement about where we're going with our technology. So I made a copy of that screenshot, and I pointed out on it. I had an arrow pointing to the screen, and I said, they saw this coming. And then I had an arrow pointing to the handset, the cord, and the dial, and I said, they didn't see this going. Yeah. I I, I was talking to a friend of mine who whose daughter is just getting into um, old movies. And she loves Grace Kelly, which I can't blame her because Grace Kelly was a wonderful actress. And she was looking through um, an old book of her mother's, which is a book my dad had way back when, the Leonard Maltin book of movies. And she goes, Mom, what does, uh, what does dial in for murder mean? Hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, she doesn't know what a dial is. <laughs> Well, that, well, think about that. Um, hey, why don't you roll up your window? Mm -hmm. What are you rolling? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, those are holdovers. What was the joke that somebody, um, a young person pointed that the, oh, what is it? The save icon on their word processing program, they, they said it looked like something else, when in fact that save icon is a, you know, it's a little tiny floppy disk. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we hold yeah. on to a lot of the things that are just nomenclature. We don't know where they came from, but they still exist. Um, but the technology has just pushed through. I just did a um, a talk at the uh, the Mensa gathering, one of the regional gatherings, and, and they invite me. I'm very honored to be invited by them. Um, and I was talking really about how we came to be storytelling creatures, and then I launched into 
you know, how to actually put together your own stories and what the creative process is. Uh, and a lot of what I talk about is how you manipulate your readership, um, which unfortunately, or fortunately, one way or the other, the Internet has you know, exploded a millionfold, how you can manipulate other people. But I mentioned it in storytelling, you pluck little tribal strings that people have, little evolutionary things, and we don't even know they're being plucked, but they motivate people's emotions, and they motivate things. And I expressed it this way. I said that we are still basically, basically, physiologically and mentally, we're still basically the little primates that were running across the savannah. Mm -hmm. That has been outstripped by our sociological evolution. We're still trying to catch up to the idea of being sociologically independent creatures within groups, but that has been incredibly outstripped by our technology. And we are still basically those primates running around on the savannah. Yeah, uh, I had an argument with a friend the other day saying that sociologically we really haven't changed. And she goes, of course we have. Look at all the things we can do. And I'm like, yeah, but do you still have fights with the same thing with the same people all the time? Yeah. Do you still have conversations that you've had a billion times with your kids trying to get them to do something? Yeah. We haven't changed. Well, we also, you know, keeping in mind that when you go into, into social areas, sociological areas, you're talking about community areas with community standards. And a lot of things that are community standards go against our evolutionary principles. Mm -hmm. They are. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically the idea of um, um, many religions that say that, you know, you cannot have sexual congress outside of marriage. And you can't get married until, you know, certain other qualifications, which are part of the law, when in fact nature is different. I'm not telling anybody to go out and act on this thing, but nature gives us a different requirement. However, sociologically, we have realized there are limitations to that, and things have changed. We certainly don't die young anymore. Well, at least not naturally. So certain social norms and certain community norms have to be imposed, but they're not necessarily... Um, in, in sync with what nature had given us. It's what we are dealing with now. The fact that we argue over things, like you were pointing it out, um, many times the arguments are, and I, and I actually keep this in mind when I write, I, t I tell students this, that when two characters argue, the chances are what they are saying has nothing to do with what their differences are. It's how they're expressing it. But in fact, their differences go on a primal level. They are plucking each other's strings somehow, and they don't realize it's happening. So now when you add the technology into it, keeping in mind that even as those little creatures running across the, uh, the belt, when we started to socialize, a major part of our socialization in our communal living was nonverbal communication, that we actually could read each other you know, without necessarily a lot of language. We did use language. We evolved language. However... It's a physical face-to-face -face thing, nonverbal nonverbal communication. Now you've got the internet where you don't have that physical interaction. Mm -hmm. That's why emojis came out because we had to actually tell each other, "I was a lappy smile," "Yeah, I was a lappy smile." You know, we had to develop those because we're lacking that. Whereas those little creatures that were running across the belt and and uh, congregating in communities, they relied on it. So we still kind of rely on that. But our technology is saying we're going to deny it. I know we just got into a really deep conversation. Awesome. Yes, I know, but I love it. <laughs> I, you know, something I, I've I've made this joke on your show before, and it is true about me. You ask me the time of day, and I'll try to give you the history of the clock. Um, but there's nothing I, wrong with that. <laughs> I was uh, Jessica and I, my wife Jessica. We were in the kitchen one time, just recently, like that's a few days ago, and out of the blue, I said you know what bothers me, or at least it bothers my mind. And she goes, she made the mistake of saying, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I went off on this rant about multiple universes coming from an individual singularity and why we assume that each universe is a parallel dimension where I might be a baker in one or a doctor in another or a murderer in one, all different except that it, because they came from the same singularity, they have the same basic timelines except for random choice that makes everything different. Where did the random choice come from? If they're all from the same place, they all came from the same singularity, 
why would they be different? You would have all these universes which are exactly identical. Which right now there's somebody like me who's ranting on this in every universe because there was no outside influence. That was an hour and a half conversation. <laughs> Poor Jessica. <laughs> no, no, she she gives as good as she takes. Believe me, she was, this was not. She wasn't just listening. She was like, "Well, what about this?" And we're like back and forth. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that fascinates me. It, oh, it's yeah. like. It's like, okay, if I flipped a coin on a table and it landed on its edge, now, statistically, that is possible. Now, what, of course, could never happen is doing it over and over and over and over again because it's chance. But here's my postulate. Postulate, I used that word wrong. Here's what I'm saying. Chance doesn't exist. Of course it won't happen. But it would happen if I recreated every event that led to it. The same pressure from my thumb, the same barometric pressure, the same distance from the table, the same background, the same everything. If I recreated everything, then it's not chance. It's a certainty. I'll do it every time. So there's got to be something as an outside factor. And then you get into the discussion of, well, is there a God particle? Is that the outside influence? I mean, it's just, like I said, an hour and a half. So well, I easily have, can do have that. dinner with me. <laughs> Easily it could do that. But it's, it's really interesting if you think about it, because everybody, it's like when you read a story, it there is no story unless there's friction. And usually the friction is miscommunication between two people. And the miscommunication is because they come from two different mindsets, and one person sees the person that's talking in a way that they got from their first impression, and the other person is talking in a way because they see him as they saw from the first impression, and they just clash, 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 because they're not actually seeing the real person. They're seeing what they've imagined in their head that the person is actually thinking. It's just like when you're talking to someone and they're not they're not seeming to understand what you're talking about and they start saying something that's totally different than what you're saying and you're like, Wait, where did you get that? But you just said it. No I didn't And you can get into this huge argument just because of this misconception of somebody putting their projection onto you. But you see that's that is the source of farce. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. Um, it's because of perspective. Everybody has a different perspective. But here's, here's the difference, and this touches right back to what I said about that primal self. If there's a misunderstanding, if you get to that point, you say, well, wait a minute, that's not what I said. If we were actually rational creatures, spoiler alert, <laughs> if we were actually rational creatures, both parties would stop and say, oh, well, then explain that to me. What usually happens at that point is now pride and defensiveness start to creep in. So now it's like, no, 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 I was right. No, no, you weren't right. You misunderstood me. Okay, well, then explain it to me. And it's, it's now a challenge. It's not a discovery of information. So then it blossoms into the huge argument, whereas actual rational creatures would say, oh, okay, we have a difference here. The difference is the problem. Let's solve the problem so that we can move on. Now, I call that reductionist thinking. That's something that I do a lot of. And reductionist thinking is basically, and I'm not going to say I'm perfect at it. I am a human being. I am also that little monkey running around on the belt. <laughs> um, reductionist thinking is where you strip away everything that is excessive and unnecessary to get to the core of the problem and solve it there. So you try to get rid of your pride. You try to get rid of pretension. You try to get rid of misinformation. You strip it down to the basic thing. Um, when I was in eighth grade, um, uh, you know, I was a military brat, so my entire life was spent in the military system, and my dad retired to what I refer to as my hometown, St. Augustine, Florida. And I was in um, eighth grade. I'd just, been, just arrived halfway through the year. N none of these kids knew me. A few of them knew me because we'd been stationed in the town once before, but we were retiring there, so most of these kids didn't know me. And this was at Catalinas Junior High School. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, shout out to the Catalinas. Um, anyway, I'm sitting there, and our teacher asked one of those provocative questions, which 
she knew that they would have a problem answering. And his question was simply this. What is up? What is up? And of course, somebody raised their hand and just pointed vaguely to the ceiling. And he said, well, that's up here, but not in Australia, not in Java. What is up? And of course, the class started going back and forth on this. Nobody with a satisfactory answer. So me, in my little eighth grade mind, I was like, what, eighth grade? So I was about 11 or 11 or 12. I'm sitting there thinking, all right, well, that's interesting. And I just started trying to figure out what I could, I tried to basically come up with every possible problem with my answer and dismiss it and find a solution. So I raised my hand and the teacher called on me and I said this, and I remember this distinctly because I remember the reaction. I said this, up is a word we use to describe the opposite direction of the main force of gravity at a particular position in a particular point in time. That's perfect. Well, there was dead silence. And even the teacher was trying to process it, and he pointed to me and he goes, that's exactly right. And I knew what he was doing in that pause. He was trying to actually disassemble every, he was trying to find a flaw in it, but it was the correct answer. Now, unfortunately, I was the new kid, and I was wearing glasses at the time, so from that point on, all the kids called me the professor. Oh, God. Right, I want to answer. I was okay, I kind of wore it as a badge of honor. But you see, that's the way, that's the way, my mind can work, but when emotions start getting involved in competition, you know, it, it just, you can't really see what you're talking about. You're actually arguing other things. And one of my rules that I try to keep track of, I try to abide by this, is if I'm getting into a discussion, especially with somebody I'm involved with, if we're getting into an argument, I will say, I've got to leave the room and I'll walk out of the room. And I try my best to ask myself the question, what did I do to create this? Because if I created it, I have the power to stop it. But i got to get rid of all the pride, and that's really hard to do. That is one of the biggest problems in the world, is pride and um, ego and, um, and trying to appear to be superior. The, the, these are the things that are causing all the separation, all the rifts, all the problems, and nobody's seeing that. They're seeing all the other stuff, the politics and the social norms and things like that, instead of really just seeing these are problems with human beings being too proud to see what's really going on. Yeah, and we're just afraid to admit that we're human. One of my, my phrases, um, my T-shirt phrases, I have a lot of T-shirt phrases, but a revelation that actually did happen to me, and, I, and I've said it this way, um, it was the day that I realized I'm only human. <laughs> and that was the most terrifying re revelation I could have come to, and it was the most liberating thing that could have ever happened to me. Because I realized I could forgive myself for being wrong. I'm only human. I can do the best I can. That's actually my favorite line from one of my favorite movies, Bell, Book, and Candle. I'm only human. <laughs> Their last line. Yeah, and it's not, it's not it's not an admission of defeat. It's actually empowering. Um, I was at uh, uh, doing a play a while back, and one of the other people in the play, um, there was something that had happened. Um, I forgot what it was, but I made a comment about it, and he looked at me. He says, "I don't think that's true. I think that's been disproven." And I said, "No, nah, I'm pretty sure it's true." Now, anytime somebody tells me I'm wrong, the first thing I do is I research it. Because <laughs> you know? I, I tell people, I say, look, if, if, if I say something and I'm right, if I say something and I'm wrong, I go and research it. If I say something and I'm right, I research it harder. So I went home and I researched this, and it turns out he was correct. I was wrong. So the next day, he was being very polite about it. He didn't bring it up or anything. And I went over to him and I said, by the way, that thing we talked about yesterday, you were absolutely correct. I was wrong. And he said, oh, okay, well, you know, thanks, because I guess he didn't expect me to, to say that. He's a cool guy. And I said, you know, I said, this is, I said, just so you know, this is my philosophy. Everybody's wrong about something. I choose to be wrong only once about the same thing. That's actually a really good philosophy. I wish more people had it. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I wish I was perfect, but, uh, you know, a 
lot of stuff that we have is holdovers, folklore, things that we assume are true or things that seem like they should be true. And then we get locked into these pride arguments. I can't admit that I was wrong. It's not easy. Um, but like I said, I'd rather just do it once. Yeah, exactly. That's what that, and I, that's another thing. People are scared to say, hey, I made a mistake. Sorry. <laughs> I built my life on mistakes. I'm proud of that. <laughs> in some case, and actually, in, in some ways, that's actually true. So. Well, you know, I think I never... we all have built our lives on mistakes. I mean, the, the, if he didn't make mistakes, he wouldn't learn. And if he didn't learn, where would you be? Well, that is the, yeah, that's, that's the obvious thing is that you definitely want to learn from your mistakes, and you should. That's why I tell people I'm not built for regret, and people misread what I say when I mean by that. It, it doesn't mean that I don't, like, think of, you know, it's not like I didn't make mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. But my choices were, one, fix it if you can, or two, learn from it so you never do this again. But the third choice of constantly reminding myself of it and criticizing myself of it, that means I, I can't leave it. It's, you know, I'm living in the past. So I choose not to do that. I either fix it or I learn from it so I can't happen again. I think that's a good philosophy. It's I hard. know, I sound I sound so stable, but you should have, like, next week have Jessica on here and you can talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> I sound so stable. I'm just so wonderful. Oh, my gosh, I have no ego. I'm just too cool for that. But it's so true, though, what you were saying. It's be and it's hard because, like you said, the emotional stuff, the the ego. Our egos are, it's not ego like you're an egomaniac. That's not the ego I'm talking about. I'm talking about the one that uh, tells you, whispers in your ear and says, oh, no, you're right. They're wrong, even though you know you're wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's narcissistic ego, which never thinks of itself as being wrong. And then there's ego, which is basically a defense mechanism because you don't want to be perceived as wrong. Right. So. I got it. But the thing is, is that is the world would be a lot smoother we just admit you know, we're human. We make mistakes. Hey, that's the way it is. <laughs> I have always said that we this would be a much better world if everybody else just admitted I was right. <laughs> so I agree with you 100%. <laughs> oh, yeah. It would be a lot smoother that way, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I just think you're funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I'm trying to be taken as a serious writer. Well, you were. You, you do both. I'm kidding. You I do read both. My stuff. I mean, I have actually. I've read <laughs> your novels and I've read your, your screenplays. So yeah, actually, yeah. I have read your stuff. <laughs> Tis a dalliance. Tis merely a dalliance. <laughs> but you see, that's the mistake. And in, in the, I put that in quotes. Since I never planned on any of this, I, I've lived almost 38 years in a career that I never planned for, I never studied for. And so, um, and this is a true statement, it sounds like it's a joke. I have often made this comment by saying that eventually I'll figure out what I want to do with my life. And everybody thinks that's a joke. It's actually true. I, I feel like, you know, I've got 38 years of the imposter phenomenon going on here with an entire career and doing quite well. And I'm still saying, yeah, but I got to grow up eventually. I got to get serious about this. Yeah, but that's okay. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just gonna do this writing thing until I can get that job at the restaurant. <laughs> oh. Or who knows? I'm actually now I'm doing more acting. Um, that was another thing. That oh, I that's did. what I was gonna ask you about. Are you enjoying doing the stuff for Renee's theater group? Well, first of all, I love the group. I love Renee. Um, I love creative people in general. Um, and, you know, I started out as an actor. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I have to say it correctly. I started out as an actor. <laughs> um, that was my actual training. That's where I got my degrees in performance in theater. Theater. Uh, the theater. theater. You must say it correctly, my, my sweet. Uh, so, yeah, my training was all in acting, and then I accidentally fell into this whole writing thing, which has just been kind of a, you know, a diversion for the last 38 years. And so... Um, yeah, when Renee asked me to do the first, um, be in the first 
play that she did for her new House of Bards company. And that was, uh, well, I'm going to say, because I'm not superstitious, Macbeth. <laughs> um, and I was King Duncan. As I told people, nothing happens into the play until I die. That's true. So, <laughs> so that was fun, getting back on the boards. A lot of it just came, kind of came back. We had a great time. And then when she did Romeo and Juliet, she cast me as the friar, which was also just awesome. Um, I really like working with her. Are you, uh, doing, are so, you in the next play? Well, the next one is Midsummer's Night's Dream, Midsummer Night's Mid Comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, I am in that one as well. What do you so play? I will be playing Peter Kentz, the head of the uh, theatrical troupe. Oh, how fun. Um, yeah, it is. I think <laughs> anybody who knows the play and, and knows that there's one story going on with some lovers who are all mixed up with the fairies in the forest and mixed identities and, you know, love potions and everything. And then there's a group of, of actors who are going to put on a play for the wedding when it actually happens. And a carpenter named Peter Kentz is the person who's in charge of this and of course he's written it and he's going to cast it and everything but he's having to deal with actors one particular actor who's difficult and I was kind of like when, when Renee asked me to do that role the first thing I thought was because I have experience in this I have dealt with those people I have <laughs> dealt with actors I am one of those actors so we'll see we'll start rehearsals pretty soon we just had a read through last week uh, with the entire cast. Uh, it's like maybe a third of the cast were in the other shows. So, um, you know, those were familiar faces. But it's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be going on in April and the beginning of May. That's really cool. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. The funny thing is, is that, you know, Renee is, is so, she's very focused on Shakespeare. She's very knowledgeable about Shakespeare. And even though I had been doing theater since I was 13, actually. My first performance was 13 years old. I got my degree in theater and college theater, regional theater, all this stuff. I had never done Shakespeare until she asked me to do it. Really? Yeah. First first Shakespeare I was ever in was Macbeth. Wow. I'd worked, I'd worked uh, like, you know, on the stage, set construction, stage manager on shows that were Shakespearean, but I had never been in one. Yeah, I played Iris and Anthony and Cleopatra. Yeah, I got yeah. to die. <laughs> well, I got to die in my first one, and then in the second one, everybody had to die around me on my advice, because I was the friar talking to Romeo and Juliet. No, do this. It'll work out fine. <laughs> so they die. I don't think I... Oh, that's true. This is the first time I'm not going to be responsible for people's deaths. Oh, okay. That's good. You, you yeah, see, it's, it's progress. It is. It's progress of some sort. <laughs> Actually, my favorite Shakespeare play is As You Like It. I've always loved that play. I like that one as well. Um, I like the flow of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that the study of how Shakespeare did write and what he was working with and, and how he constructed things, how he created words, but mostly how he created the flow of words, uh, for his own particular purposes. I find that fascinating, um, especially when somebody does it really, really well. Uh, you know, Kenneth Branagh, watching him do Shakespeare is just, like, amazing to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I find the, the person of Shakespeare, and I know some of you out there are saying, you mean Edward de Vere. No, 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 I, I used to think that as well. No, it was definitely Shakespeare. Um, yeah, the person of Shakespeare. I find him to be interesting, because I, I do believe that some people are just, they are born with a, and I, I hate to say this this way, they're born with a talent. I don't want to say a gift. They're born with a talent, but part of that talent is being completely open to their world. And then the second part of it is trying to actually find a way to relate it to other people within your world. And there are rarities. There are people who just can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think he was one of those people. Yeah, I think I think he had the ability to see things that about people and relationships that most people didn't and he created these amazing plays because of that. Well, he also he understood audiences. Mm. And that's the main thing that I, I tell writers this all the time. It's not a matter of understanding your own material. 
and understanding your own characters. You have to understand how it's perceived. You have to understand the audience. That's why I recommend you know, take courses in psychology, sociology, anthropology, read Desmond Morris, Margaret Mead, read those things. They you know, give you insights into the human condition. And what Shakespeare was able to do was he was able to write toward an audience. And another fascinating thing about him, here I go again explaining how a clock was developed. <laughs> a lot of things in Shakespeare, uh, scenes in Shakespeare, Shakespearean plays, were for completely practical reasons, not story reasons. Keep in mind the set design they had back then, changing costumes, raising and lowering backdrops, and, and the limitations that they had. There were times when you'd have an entire group of characters in one scene, then you had an interlude scene. And then in the next scene, you had a completely different group of characters, which were played by the same actors. So they had to go off, change costume, get into position, and get ready for the scene after the interlude scene. And yet when you watch the play, the interlude scene is usually one of the most fascinating things. He writes it as if it was always the intention to put that in there. Yep, that's true. And it's because if he had nothing going on there, people would be bored. And he knew that. <laughs> yeah, and that's in part of my writing instruction when I tell people, I, I talk about finding the high points of your story. And as you start doing the outline, you start to create high points because your story has to basically traipse along these high points to its conclusion. And each one of those high points has to be interesting. And I said, but here's the real problem. The way you travel between the high points has to be just as interesting as the points you're going to. Otherwise, people won't care. It's interesting. It's really it's, I I actually uh, got a new book. Um, <laughs> I got a lot of books for my birthday, um, but one of them's called I haven't read it yet. It's called The Serpent of Venice, and what they did was he took the fool from um, from the merchant, not the merchant, King Lear, the fool from King Lear. There's Othello's in it, and um, and uh, Desdemona's in it, and there's all these different characters, and he mixes it, and it's a comedy. <laughs> uh -huh. Sure. It's it's really, I can't wait to read it. I mean, because I heard him talking on a YouTube video, and now I want to read it even more. I just have so many books I have to finish before I get to it. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, see, I, I think that's what the... Um especially what's considered the classics. I find that to be interesting. Um, you know, as a writer that I am today, I will be arrogant enough to say that there are several Shakespeare plays that I would say, okay, dude, we got a few notes and you got to change a few things. Come back to me with a second draft. Because, you know, I have my own perspective. But again, I'm fascinated by the creative process that he went to. You know, another writer that is really undercredited, and he was referred to as the Spanish William Shakespeare, is Lope de Vega. And Lope de Vega was, a, boy, he lived the life that Shakespeare wrote about. He was a soldier. He was a courtesan, well, I mean, a, a court dandy, if you want to say. Um, he was a seducer. He was, he was all of this stuff. And he was, I think he was a contemporary of Cervantes as well. But he wrote some amazing plays, and his output was much higher than William Shakespeare's. So, uh, but, but since he's in the Spanish language, of course, he, he gets, you know, limited um, notoriety in, uh, in the American cultures because we are primarily English. But, so is he like uh, in I would the, love to see. Is he in the style of like a Molière? No, 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 no. He's, he's more in the style of, of uh, well, more in the style of Shakespeare. Oh, he's um, okay. I, there was uh, one of my favorite plays of his was called Dog in the Manger. And it is a romantic farcical type of thing takes place in a palace, I'm trying to remember all the details, where somebody who is a, a somebody who works there in the palace has fallen in love with this woman who's going to be married and she's of royal background. And she knows this and she's toying with him. And his name is uh, Teodoro was his, his character's name, I believe. And um, the title Dog in the Manger comes from some sort of a phrase that basically says you, you neither let me feed nor go away. You keep me here. Why are you doing this? And it's a really interesting play. And there are comedic aspects. There is a gesture, I believe. Um, but it, but again, it's the same type of thing. 
You know, there's swordplay involved, there's romance involved. So, yeah, I'd like to actually see more of, uh, of Lope de Vega's work done. Hey, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I will produce that. That'd be cool. When did he write? What time period? Uh, usually about 4 a.m. until about 12.30, then he took a break. <laughs> I mean era. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, let's see. He was in the... Um, you said Cervantes? Hundreds. He was in the early 1600s. So he was, I think he was born, let's see, he was born just before St. Augustine was founded. Um, 1560, I'm going to say, 1560, something like that, was when he was born. So his prolific works um, were really toward the uh, the beginning of the, the 17th century, so beginning of the 1600s. And you said he was a contemporary of Cervantes? I think he was. I'm trying to remember Cervantes' timeline. I guess I could look it up on a computer. Well, look, there's the internet. Oh, where'd <laughs> that come from? I know it's so it's it, it it's actually eating our brains because you we can't remember what as much as we used to remember because most of we we go into Google immediately. Yeah, I wish I had a brain to do that. Uh, yes, I I just looked up Cervantes' timeline and he um, um he was older, but uh, yes, he uh, they did overlap. They were contemporaries during their creative years. I love Don Quixote. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of wonderful work that came out of uh, the Iberian Peninsula, um, keeping in mind what Spain had just gone through with the consolidation of Castile and Aragon and the ousting of the Moors, which was a huge mistake, and Stupid. the Jews, which was a huge mistake. Well, it destroyed their economy, for yeah. one thing. And they ended up with all of these warriors after all these wars, and they said, well, we can't keep you home because you'll overthrow us, and oh, I bet there's gold over the sea. So then the conquistadors go out and conquer the Americas. So, history again. History. Yes. Yeah, I remember um, before the pandemic, my brother and I used because I was new to San Diego. My brother has lived here for like 20 years, and other than vacations. Um, so he would take me to different places, and one of the places we went was, oh, what's the name of the point? I forgot it. But it's all about, it, they, all they talk about is the, the Spanish coming over and what they did and what they did to the uh, people, the natives who lived here. And it, it was really, you're just actually really sad <laughs> when you're reading it because of what they, it's like they had no feelings for people's independence and their own intelligence and that maybe they don't want to become Christian. <laughs> well, there is that religious entitlement that certain cultures do feel. It's not restricted to Christianity, but um, yes, there is that. And the conquistadors, um, when they went to the Americas in the golden era of Spain, uh, they were fairly bloodthirsty. They had license. They were licensed by their god and their church to do whatever they had to do. Um, some of the stories of De Soto and those are just like spine-tingling when you read about that. Cortez and his conquest of Mexico is an incredible story. Mm -hmm. um, the mixture of disease as well as alliances. The Aztecs at that time, huge nation. However, they had also small nations within them of tribes that they were constantly at war with, and that was, they perpetuated that because it was a part of their case system. As a warrior, you need to fight somebody, so they would, they would never obliterate these tribes, which allowed Cortez um, to actually make alliances with these other tribes. But at the same time, I mean, it's, obviously, I'm, I'm really um, under, underselling the story. It is an incredible story in itself. And disease obviously plays a huge factor in it. But there were very few of them um, with Cortez's mission compared to the entire Aztec nation. Um, contrary to St. Augustine in 1565, when that was founded, my hometown, the colonists were very few, and the Tumacua and Calusa nations were huge. And yet they were, those nations were also at war with the, I believe, the Creek Indians who were allied with the British. So instead of wiping out the Spanish, as they could have done, they made alliances. So I'm not going to say it was beautiful and wonderful and pretty, um, but in fact, the first actual Thanksgiving by the European standard 
took place in St. Augustine because that colony almost starved to death, and the local Native Americans, primarily the Tumakua, brought them food so that they could survive. But they were making alliances because of the military intervention of the British. I love history. It's incredibly fascinating to get past all of the veneer and just read into it. Yeah. I was just thinking about what you were talking about, about Cortez and everything. Montezuma's Revenge, people think that's the water when you go to Mexico, but actually it has nothing to do with it. It's just used for that. Um, It's because of the diseases that the Cortez's men got. That's where Montezuma's Revenge came from. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, the European diseases gave more than they got. Oh, that's true. I think we... The Europeans got syphilis, but we gave them smallpox. And it was the case of, you know, the European peoples, because of their topography, geography, and the fact that they were an older division of our race, um, they had built up certain immunities to certain things. Whereas the Native Americans, if you buy the Bering Strait theory, which I do, I do. Uh, when they passed over there, they did not take with them the type of bacteriological and biological history that the Europeans had already been immune to. So naturally, it was just like, you know, even if they had shown up just to trade and be happy, the disease still would have happened. So it's it's kind of like the clash of civilizations. Was it inevitable? It probably was. But if you just, even if you were to accept that, you still can't get past the ideas of conquest. No. Because now you just added on top of that, and the disease just facilitated the conquest. Yep. It's, that's what I meant by sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. I look at history, try to be a little bit dispassionate about it, and say it is what it is. Movements like this, wars like this, conquests like this, they're not unusual in our history. They happen all the time. We're learning, hopefully. Hopefully we're learning so that we can increase ourselves as aware beings. Once again, it's that socialization. But it's like, here's here's something that I, I hate to say this, but it's absolutely true. I'm going to say it the bad way, then I'm going to explain it. Okay. <laughs> the bad way is to say this. Slavery is normal. Because if you look at the entire history of civilization, the idea that slavery is not just illegal but also immorally repugnant is a small sliver of our entire history. Now, it is the correct path, absolutely the correct path, but for the longest time that was considered normal. Now, the difference, though, is that when it was uh, slavery in the older, older, older times was usually the result of war, where you took prisoners and they became slaves. Um, What happened, though, with the European expansion was that instead of slavery being a byproduct of a war, slavery became the reason for wars because they became the product. And that is what exploded slavery. Again, that is not to condone anything, obviously. That's to explain what that process was because we can look at it and say it was absolutely evil, and I will absolutely tell you that it was. It was evil. But it was done for marketing. That was the explosion of it. Slavery itself became the commodity. It wasn't a byproduct. That is the evil that we can do to each other. It's so disgusting. It it is, and we know that now, and I like to believe that's the path we progress upon. That is the awareness where we get away from that part of ourselves, the evil part of ourselves, you know, the bad angels that speak in our ear. And we move toward a more enlightenment, not in the spiritual kind of like hippie sense, but a more enlightenment and awareness about ourselves by confronting those real things that happened in the past so that we can move forward. But um, sometimes when you, when you go back and look at history, there's a lot of inconvenient stuff there, but we need to know about it. I hate to bring up the mundane, but we're coming to the end of the show. So <laughs> I want to know if you have anything that you're going, any events or anything that's coming up, conventions, fairs, <laughs> signings, anything like that that's coming up. I know it's really mundane, but people will want to know that. <laughs> well, you just you just said it for me. It's time for the mundane part, so tell me where I can see you. <laughs> no, I mean, Thank we're you. talking this really intellectual 
Hi, Ralph. So I thought, well, I have to bring it back to the It's kind war. of like we've gotten a long way from the, so did you like see Tom Selleck in a restaurant? That was like awesome. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we've, 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 well, certainly you and I have been friends for a, a long, long time. Long time mm-hmm. So our conversations tend to uh, go off on the esoteric. Yes. Um, but as far as appearances, um, I don't have anything logged at the moment, uh, unless you show up on like <laughs> the Princess Cruise and the Norwegian Cruise that I mentioned to you off camera. Um, so I'm taking some vacations this year. Yay! Jessica and I are going to be cruising. Uh, but other than that, no, nothing really. No, nothing set in stone. I, you know, I, I go to conventions when I can and hang out and walk around. Every now and then, I get pulled up on a panel. Um, but I don't have anything scheduled at the moment. So, okay. sorry for those of you looking for the Stephen L. Sears eye candy, you shall be denied. So, no Comic-Con, no WonderCon, none of that? Um, I might be there. WonderCon is, in fact, I just got the rehearsal schedule for um, for the play, and WonderCon is during the rehearsal schedule, so I don't know if I'll show up for that. But I, I literally would just be hanging out, you know, so... I haven't talked to anybody about doing panels specifically because of the rehearsal. And um, Comic-Con, sometimes I do a panel there, sometimes I don't, nothing scheduled. I know we have another Xena convention coming up in 2024. I will probably be at that. The last one was pretty cool. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. That one was pretty fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. That's yeah, okay. We we basically <laughs> cracked open the human genome code of psychiatric care in our conversation. So. Um, but the yeah the there was a pretty big con. I didn't get to go, but I heard it was a pretty big con. It was fun. It was you know all these old friends of mine. We got together. It was a lot of like oh my god, look at you, look at you. Um, you know it was how many years since we did the last one? Seven years since we did the last. Uh, Xena convention. Yeah, and, and more than half of these people were new. They had not been to these conventions before. So a whole new group of Xenites out there, and they're all awesome. And yeah, it was and it was the first time Jessica had gone to a Xena convention, so that was kind of eye opening for her. Um, she was accepted immediately by the Xenite community. Of course. Yes. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was. It you know, it's become more like a family reunion when we do these Xena conventions or Xena get-togethers, the Xenite Retreat is another thing. Penny Kavanaugh and Kat, um, they they put that together. That one, I think they're, the next one's on the East Coast somewhere. Um, yeah, it's just, it's. I'm really impressed by that fandom and how they've just become a family fandom. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean you're now a fan of the family. The show is a part of it, but you're just a fan of the family. Yep, I'm still friends with everybody I knew in the Xena world. <laughs> Yeah, it was great to see, you know, some of the uh, performers, the actors I hadn't seen in a while. I hadn't seen Lucy in a while. That was great, hanging out with her. Um, Tim Amundsen, um, you know, Alex Sightings. We see each other every now and then, get together for lunch. It was just great. That's so cool. Yeah. 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 And I love Lucy's new show. Have you you seen it? I have not seen it. I, I You've don't get that it. channel for one thing. I've heard so many things about it. Oh, so. it's so good! It's called yeah, Life Is Murder. It's so much fun. It's, and Renee was in one. I know, I know. I'm afraid I would watch it and get frustrated that I wasn't writing it because it sounds like it's really good. And Michael directed it. Michael Hurst. Yes. Yeah, Michael and and Jennifer were supposed to show up at the convention, but they had obligations. They couldn't make it. I was very disappointed in that. Yeah. Oh, they were in another episode. To, um, uh, he directed and she acted, Jennifer. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's sort of like watching that show is like a Xena reunion. There's all these people that used to be in Xena are in those episodes. <laughs> well, for the for the most part, we enjoyed working with each other. Mm-hmm. And I say for the most part only because, you know, it's a dysfunctional family. These things, you always have disagreements on certain things. But, you know, there was a lot of trust involved with that show. And we just got a kick out of each other. Not that we got along all the time. I, you know, it's, like I said, dysfunctional family. But at the end of the day, these are people you could rely on. Yep. You know, I, I have no doubt if, if I put another show on the air, um, I can tell you right now, I'm grabbing as many people out, out of our um, group as I can. If, if it's shot in New Zealand or Australia, I'm grabbing as much of the crew as I can, that's for sure. That's so, cool. Yeah. It's, 
And anytime you do see the Xena alum performers working together, uh, pretty much you can be sure that it was probably a personal phone call. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like through casting. It wasn't through official things. It was kind of like, you want to do this? Sure, let's get together and do that. Yeah, that's what actually Renee said that during an interview for the the TV show that Lucy called. <laughs> yep. yep, just out of the blue. Yep. How you doing? You want to get the get the old band back together again? Sure, why not? <laughs> oh, Renee got to play a really good part. <laughs> well, Renee's wonderful. She's incredibly talented. I could I could have spoken an hour on just her talent alone. Yeah. I'm so. <laughs> I have pictures of when we first started the show, the first time she ever was aware that there was an internet presence or a chat room on AOL, because I have a picture of her sitting there. I'm showing it to her on the computer. And then I have another picture that I put side by side with it, which is her when she became a director, and she's sitting next to the monitor, and she's (laughs) looking at this because she's analyzing it. She's doing everything because she's putting together a TV show, and it's just like, wow, what incredible growth. Yep. I think it's cool. Um... Anyway, we're over an hour. So we're I, way over an hour. I better People, say, say good night. Anyway, thank you, Steve, for coming on this show. I love talking to you. I could do a five-hour show with you. <laughs> you almost did, but we only recorded a little over an hour of it. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy talking to you. Um, I enjoy talking to you, and we will do this again. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not a threat. We will. No. Of course it's not a threat. It's a joy. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.